we turn to God's word, Fiona's going to come and read it to us, and then David is going to speak to us. Let's commit this part of the service to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Forgive us that we don't always love it and cherish it and study it as we should. We do pray, Lord, that as we hear it this morning, you will open our ears and the eyes of our minds and our hearts. Pray for David as he speaks to us, that you will anoint him with the Holy Spirit, that he may speak powerfully to us, and that we will hear, receive, and act upon what you want to say to us, each one. Amen. Reading is taken from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17. The vine and the branches. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. As we prepare for Easter, we've been looking at a series of sermons from John. They started in John 12. Uh, They go through Bethany, through the Last Supper, the Farewell Discourses, John 14 to 17, then the Arrest and the Trial, John 18 to 19, and culminating in the Resurrection, 
uh, in John 2021. 20, and what we've been looking at is that middle section called the Farewell Discourses. 14 to 17. Now, we actually, when you, look, when you break it down, you find that thematically, these are the themes that, that come up in those farewell discourses. The setting is Jesus saying to his disciples what he's not been able to say to them yet, because he's, as it were, they've traveled together, they've seen enough now to begin to understand. And so there they are, gathered in the room. Uh, they've had their last supper, and it's very interesting in John's Gospel, John thinks the most important point to be made about the Last Supper is, is what? What is it that stands out? Ah, so I, I, I'm awfully sorry. When I, I was a, a mission partner in Africa, and when you preach in Africa and ask a question, people queue up to answer. <laughs> And it's totally ruined my preaching. So those are all real questions. It's not the, you know, the preachers are asking a question so even then cleverly answer it. No, sir. Okay. What is distinctive about this, the record of the Last Supper, which is there in John, chapter 13, which you don't find in the other three Gospels? Two things. Go on. There were the washing of the feet. That's right. Remember, Jesus knelt and washed the disciples' feet. And second, there isn't a Last Supper. Well, there is, but the words about when Jesus said, take the bread and take the wine and do this in remembrance of me are not there. Because John felt it was even more important to see that Jesus was our servant. And so at the very moment, the one, the highlight he picks out is Jesus kneeling, washing the disciples' feet. And we heard about that um, just recently on Sunday. So here we have the, the themes, if you like. In the, in the first, you've got here in John 14, you've got Jesus talking about heaven. In my Father's room, there are many rooms. And then the way, I am the way to the Father. Then in John 14, later on, another advocate, the Holy Spirit, and then the gift of peace. Today we're looking at the vine, and particularly uh, uh, you are my friends, as you have gathered from the intercession, the shape of those. And then it goes on to talk about the oppositions disciples will face and how the Holy Spirit will be with them. And then we look at Jesus' prayer, first for the church and then for those who are not yet Christians but will believe through the ministry of the church. Well, if you've been in that upper room there with Jesus and you'd known that John was going to write up all these themes, which of course you didn't, which of those themes would have been the biggest surprise, do you think, for those people sitting around, reclining around the table where they had the Last Supper? Which of those is a surprise? Yeah. Okay, let's try it. Heaven, I mean, that was commonplace. People look forward to when um, God was going to come and usher in a new creation, and that would be heaven, paradise. So that's a commonplace, and they expected the Messiah to bring that in, so that's part of the course. The way to the Father, they twigged that Jesus was is somehow the Father drawing close to them, and so he, following him was the way to the Father. 
the advocate, the Holy Spirit, well, they knew about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to people to do jobs, and here's the Holy Spirit coming alongside them for the future. That's no, okay, not a complete surprise. Gift of peace, God gives us peace, that's fine. The vine, the vine was an image that was used in Isaiah to talk about the children of Israel. So when the vine comes up in the Old Testament, it reminds people that God imagines his people as a vine. So they thought, we're God's people, the vine works. You are my friends. Um, well, we're going to talk about it in a moment. Uh, opposition, expect the Spirit will be with you, and Jesus praying for the church. This is the one that was the surprise. Because how many people in the Old Testament are described as friends of God? One, think of one. One. Who, who was it? Oh, sorry, that, that was the follow-up question. <laughs> Abraham, thank you. Yes? Moses, yes. And that's it. Well, we get close with Enoch. Enoch walked with God in the garden. And that's what friends God did in his friendship. So we've got only two people in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures are described as friends of God. In the New Testament, how many people are friends of Jesus? The kind of New Testament equivalent. Well, we are as from now, but up until this point, Go on. How many people are, did Jesus say, well, others say of Jesus, no, friends of Jesus. Say again. The disciples were never described as friends up to this point. But it's a good idea. In fact, if we could rewrite, you know, we might work in earlier, but they weren't. Ah, who said it? Lazarus. Do you remember his friend, Lazarus, has died? Your friend, Lazarus, has died. And the others, who else were described as friends of Jesus? Oh, sorry, somebody at the back, go on. Um, I think it was Lazarus, but actually I'm sure they were all friends, yes. The other one is more um, elliptical. Jesus was described by his critics as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. To be a friend is something very special. Um, how many people here watch Friends? Uh, now it's very interesting. That's a generational answer. Uh, my son Simon, um, he's, he's moved in with us, as some of you may know. Great privilege, really. We're still working, discovering that, but he's here. And uh, when he wants to chill out, because he hasn't got all his mates around, because it's a new area, he's come from Yorkshire, he retires to his room, uh, where he's got a telly, naturally, and a computer, naturally, and he watches friends back to back. And you can hear these American voices permeating around the house. Um, who, who does watch friends? Charlotte. You, uh, can you just say in one sentence, Why? <laughs> Go on. Yeah. 
get all young, isn't it, aren't they? I mean, adults appear, but actually they're basically mid-twenties, early-twenties, that kind of generational thing, yeah. Um, and actually they get a lot of mileage and emoting, don't they, out of a few words. Um, so anyway, the, 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 Jesus is not talking about friends like that. Jesus is talking about something which was so unusual, unexpected. People did a double take and said, pardon? You are my friends. Well, let's just look. What Jesus actually said was, no longer do I call you servants, I've called you friends. Now, to be a servant of God was actually a great accolade. People were delighted when others said, I can tell you, you are one of those servants of God, aren't you? And you say, yeah. Quietly thinking, I'm glad they noticed, but private, publicly say, I, I wouldn't claim fame and all that. To be a servant of God is a high accolade. That hymn, ye servants of God, your master proclaim. We, we still sing it ourselves, don't we? But, and here are some of the servants. Moses, Joshua, David, Paul, James. Some of the great people of faith. Servants of God. But Jesus wants to go one better. I think for many of us, we've understood what it means to be a servant of God, doing things for God as he asks us. But to be a friend of God is actually still in the future for some of us, perhaps many. Well, let's see. Who else is a friend of God? Abraham, we talked about Moses, Nicodemus, uh, sorry, tax collector and Lazarus. Well, now, what is it that's distinctive about friendship? If you'd like to just turn to the, if you've got the Bible in front of you, and turn to John 15. John, if you start at 15, John 15, 9, what are, what are the hallmarks of this friendship that Jesus is talking about? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I love you. Do you know the great thing about friendship is that it is not something that you generate yourselves. It's a gift somebody else gives to you, isn't it? Isn't it a thrill when somebody comes up and says, do you know, I, I consider you my friend. Don't you feel something special then? And don't you feel when people don't have that, you feel sorry. You feel sympathy for those who haven't got many friends. Friendship is a gift. And Jesus is saying here, I love you. That's where it begins. Jesus, the first word of Jesus toward us is love. Then he goes on. Now remain in my love. How do you do that? If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I kept my father's commandments. So keeping the commandments, obedience. And I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. Joy, a characteristic of that. But actually, we're only warming up. What's the real mark of friendship? Verse 13, you may think, greater love has no one to lay down their power. It's not that. You are my friends if you do what I command. We know that. Here it is. I no longer call you servants, verse 15, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends, for everything I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. The distinctive thing for Jesus about the disciples being his friends is that he has a conversation with them about what's going on. I will tell you all that I've learned from my Father. 
and I will make it known to you. And these farewell discourses, this collection of sayings of Jesus is exactly that. Jesus is doing here what he says friends do. Take you into my confidence, share with you my plans, talk over with you the future. All of that is there. And it is actually not an innovation. If we go back to the Old Testament for a moment, The Lord said to himself in Genesis 18, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Just as Jesus said, Shall I not tell you what I've learned from my father? In Genesis 18, do you remember the story? Genesis, the three angels representing God came to meet with Abraham. And then Abraham meets with God through that. And then two of the angels leave and he's there with God. And God says, shall I not tell Abraham what I'm going to do? And he said, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, two little villages just down the, the bottom. You can see them in the valley down there. Their reputation is, is awful. They've had so many people say, get your right, straighten out, uh, improve your ways, repent. And they've declined time and again. So the time has come that they're now literally not only a blot on the landscape, their views about how to live and the immorality they practice are spreading. Others are catching the, the same sort of vision. Therefore, says God, I want to remove them. I'm going to blot them out, I think was the, word he, the phrase he uses. And Abraham was listening to God explain what God was going to do. And then, it's not in the text, but I think it's likely, read it if you like, Abraham goes to the edge of the hill, the mountain he's on, and looks down at Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looks at them, and he thinks, you know, like every place, they're a mixture. Aren't they? They're always good and bad mixed up together, living alongside each other. So what did Abraham then do? That's right. He pleads with God. He bargains with God. Really? Did he? Yes, because that's what friends do. So Abraham said, Lord, you wouldn't destroy that if there were 50 righteous people there, would you? And what does God say? No, I won't, because you suggested that. Do you see what's happened? In that conversation of friends between God and Abraham, Abraham has made a contribution. I mean, he's clearly the junior partner, as we all are. But God has listened and has done what? Changed his mind. Because his friend has made a suggestion. And God has listened and thought, okay, can I incorporate that? That's the friendship we're talking about. And then Abraham, you remember, he, he's... He's pushing his luck, as they'd say today. Then he says what? He goes back to the hill, he looks down. They're pretty small villages, you know. And I can only think of one person who might be a good person. I'm not even sure they are, really. So he goes back to God and said, actually, what? Yeah. Lord, if there were 40. God said, all right. 30? All right. What's going on is an interaction of friends where talking things over is shaping the future. Now, clearly it is God's future, and clearly it is God who does whatever is the outcome. 
That's friendship. And Jesus does the same. He says that you are my friends. I'm going to tell you what I'm planning. And here in, is the secret of prayer. Because in prayer, we literally join in the conversation with God about what he might or might not want to do. When we come in prayer, we're not just reciting a list as if God didn't know. We don't work for the times or the sun, depending on oh, the sun over this side, okay? Um, what we're doing in prayer is we're coming into God's presence and entering into a conversation with the living God. And it is as if, the way I put it for myself that helps me think about prayer, it is as this, it is as if God has not completely made up his mind what he's going to do in one minute's time. How's that? He has not completely made up his mind what he's going to do in one minute's time. And therefore, if you engage in conversation with God in prayer, it might be that your contribution will shape whatever God does in one minute's time. And that's how intercessory prayer works. We don't, as it were, tell God what we want and therefore require him to do it. But we say, Lord, could it be? We, you know in my heart of heart, I'd love it if it could be. And the Lord said, well, maybe, maybe not. And then does whatever he decides. But that is, that's born in the context of friendship. And that's why it says in James, you pray, but you don't receive. Because you go to God with what you think needs to be done. And God says, I wasn't planning to do that anyway. So that's that, mate, as it were, metaphorically. We, in our conversation with God, are real players. And that's why intercession is such a privilege. But intercession springs out of conversation. And conversation includes what? Listening. Listening. I think that's, for me, I find the hardest bit. I don't know whether you know, but when you get ordained as a collar, you get one of these collar things, um, which some churches use. Um, when you get given one of those uh, white things that you put around your, um, suddenly your prayer life just becomes wonderful. It's amazing. I don't know how this bit of plastic does it. You should try it. In fact, I'll loan you mine. I don't mind. Every one of us struggles to enter into this conversation and to be in the Lord's presence and to be open to what he says to us and to offer back to him and to listen and have, as it were, genuine intercourse, discourse. He listens, we speak the other way around. And that's what Jesus is saying. You see it in Abraham, you see it in your friends. Now, how about this? I reckon here's an example of it. Jesus sent his disciples in the boat across the lake uh, it was late, there was a storm brewing, and he said, I'm going to stay behind and pray. Do you remember? Then out in the lake, the storm brews, and they're there. Who's the captain? Peter, therefore, they're, they're safe, aren't they? He knows what he's doing. Reliable chap, yes. Fisherman, probably owns the boat. Yeah. And then in the middle of the night, they're panicking. And then they see this kind of ghostly figure walking on the water. Well, I don't know about you, but I think I'd be pretty terrified. The text is literally, they were terrified. There's, there's this figure coming across the sea. As it got nearer and nearer, suddenly the penny drops and they know who it is, yeah? Remember Jesus. So they say, ah, oh, the disciples say, it's the Lord. Things will be all right. But what does Peter say? Our friend, our leader. What did he say? Do you know, I thought this was Aldridge, where they knew their scriptures. 
Jill, you're, you're, I think another alpha may be called. No, I don't. That's all right. <laughs> Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, bid me walk on the water. And I bet you at that time, all the disciples thought, he's a twit. We know it's Jesus. Jesus knows it's Jesus. What's going on? And there's Peter saying, no, if it's really, really you, Lord, bid me walk on the water. And at that point, I suggest Jesus thought two things. Number one, he thought, Peter, you're a twit. But he only said that to himself. And second, he thought, okay, Peter, if you can learn through this, let's do it. That was not my idea, Peter. You got that. I didn't want, I never thought of doing it. I never intended it. But as you made the suggestion, I am willing to go along with it because out of this, I think something good can come. And so he took Peter's suggestion. He said, right, Peter, get out the boat. And at that stage, imagine if you were Peter. Your cover is blown. You wish you'd never opened your mouth. I mean, how many, how many here have done walking on water? I mean, there you are. And Peter got on the side of the boat. I can imagine sitting on the boat, going up and down, and the disciples, instead of looking at Jesus now, they're all like this. Go on, then. Go on. Jesus took Peter's suggestion, and it changed the future, didn't it? And it's the same for us today. To be a friend of Jesus, to be, to be given that, is such a privilege. Well, how does it work, practically? I have to say, um, in my experience, we use the word friend much too quickly today. People are friends. I think Facebook helped ruin it, really. I don't know about it really for you, but uh, I'm, I'm not joined friends with Facebook because I, I haven't got the, um, the gonads, as my son puts it. I haven't got the courage to say to people, I don't want you to be my friend. I think it, it gives all the wrong vibes. And I certainly don't know what you do. How, you, how do you unfriend somebody on Facebook without upsetting them? I mean, how? So I don't think we actually use the word friend these days as it really is meant. To be a friend is a really serious commitment. Jesus said, friendship is so much, it, it's, it has this quality and depth that you would lay down your life for your friend. That's what he's talking about. I am your real friend, a quality friend, and not a fair weather friend or a sort of a Facebook friend. The second reason for not going on Facebook for me is that I'm tired of looking at the pictures of what people eat. It's just extraordinary. <laughs> I, I, it's, I look on Janet's for that. I don't see, of course. Jesus says, I want to be your real friend, and I am declaring to you, you are my friend. Now, I suggest that that is something we need to develop. And how do you do that? Well, actually, this is the bit where it's so easy, you, can hardly, you hardly need to say it. How do you develop a friendship? By investing time. That's it. Spending time together, invest in it, conversation, time, listening, Sometimes just doing nothing. Isn't that what they say about um, marriages, that the people spending time together, that's the, that builds the relationship. So if we want to know more about that friendship that's been offered to us, Jesus is the one who offers it. All we have to do is give it time. And I find that's the, big, the biggest battle. The battle is not actually entering into the conversation with Jesus. The battle is finding the time to do it. But that's our challenge. That's all we need to do is to give time. And then we'll discover as we open ourselves, say, Lord, come to me. I want to refresh our friendship. He will. The Holy Spirit will bring things to mind from scripture or song. The Holy Spirit will put words into your mind. 
you will offer words to the Lord and you'll find affirmation sometimes. And other times you'll sense and know that's not the way and you'll take back those ideas and say, Lord, teach me again. We have to do with the God who's alive. The first Christians talked about Jesus as their Lord. Jesus is Lord. Remember the first creed. And in the Greek it means Jesus is the one who reigns now. He's alive right now. That was the mistake John Wimber made. Do you know some of you come across John Wimber? He was a great sort of converted rock musician uh, who became a breath of fresh air in the church. He took that, the fact that Jesus was alive now, and thought it was true. So he lived as if it were. And so when he taught a course on Acts at Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, on uh, how the book of Acts, God moved through the book of Acts, some of the students said, but God doesn't do that today. And he said, why not? He said, it says here in Scripture he does. And they said, well, okay, if he does it today, do it. So he said, okay, let's do it. So they did, they prayed, and somebody got healed in a lecture. Well, that was not good form. How do you, how, how do you write an essay on somebody who's just got healed? You're supposed to know about Acts and how it divides up and what the Greek means. And so then somebody else said to somebody else here, and they prayed again. And his lecture course turned into 45 minutes of lecture and 15 minutes of ministry. And he thought, John Wimber thought, that was, that was exactly what Jesus means. We're not in, we haven't got to do with theoretical truths. These point us into an experience of the living God. And I think that's, that, that springs from just realizing that Jesus says, you are my friend. I was trying to look for an image of friendship and I couldn't find one, not, not an easy one. Which was, so I thought, I just look at the creation. Sometimes you think the creation is a gift. And on that, I would recall, Jesus said, no longer, David, do I consider you to be a worker for me. You're my friend. Sometimes I think people who go away in monasteries and nunneries and things, they don't seem to do very much that's useful, do they? Well, you've privately thought that. I know they pray for us all. That's very good. Thank you. We're glad about that. But actually, maybe we could learn from that instinct to find time to let Jesus make his friendship more real. I tell you, it'll change you. and it'll cha I find it changes me. And I can tell now, when I'm so busy, I've not had time to commune with the Lord. I've prayed at the beginning of the day, as you do, and I've prayed over sermons when you have to give them or whatever. But just to commune, to be with Jesus, talking things over. That is his promise to you. That's the, that's the gift for today. Isn't that great? Yeah? Well, can I encourage you? Let's have a go. This Lent, let's say, Lord, I'm going to give more time to going deeper in my friendship with you. Yep. Let's pray. Right, now I've slightly tricked you into saying yes there. So in this moment now, would you like to say what you want to say to the Lord Jesus, your friend? So, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you you're still here, even though we've been too busy to be with you for a while. Come, Lord, into our lives afresh and grant that we may enjoy the joy that you bring to those who are your friends. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.